Well, if you have uh, this afternoon's uh, bulletin, there should be available for you some notes from which we will confess together the words from the Heidelberg Catechism. As we make our way through the Catechism, we have arrived at Lord's Day 29. We continue our meditation upon the nature of the Lord's Supper. So we will confess together what we believe from question 78 and 79. Do the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? No. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ, in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood? Uh, Paul uses the words, a participation in Christ's body and blood. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance. And that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. And now turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. And we will read uh, verses 27 through 58. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set a seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him, whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives Uh, gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, 
that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me first draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to our hearts, to our minds, and to our wills. In 1529, in Marburg, there was a meeting that would decide the outcome of the Reformation. Chief among those at this meeting were Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli. They represented the two major factions of the Reformation. At this colloquy of Marburg, They were to debate 15 points of doctrine. They were to debate these points in order to hopefully find some reconciliation between their two factions. And amazingly, they found that they were agreed with each other on the first 14 points of doctrine. But when they arrived at that last point, the reconciliation that they hoped for, it quickly deteriorated. That 15th point of doctrine was about the presence of Christ in the Supper. Luther, he maintained that Jesus, he is present in, with, and under the bread. While Zwingli, he wanted to say that we do not receive Jesus in the supper. We do not eat of his flesh or his body. Instead, the supper functions more as a memorial, a remembrance of what Jesus did for us. If we consider the words of the institution, which we heard this last service, Luther, he would emphasize that statement where Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. While Zwingli, he focused on the words, do this in remembrance of me. This disagreement between Luther and Zwingli became so heated that Luther, railing against Zwingli, started pounding on the table and yelling, this is my body. 
This is my body. And then he went on and he wrote on that table, hocus corpus meum, not hocus pocus, hocus corpus meum. It's Latin. It means this is my body. Luther maintained that what we receive in the bread and in the wine is Jesus Christ, his flesh and his blood. And Zwingli was denying that. So this led Luther to say, you have another spirit. He had doubts whether Zwingli was even of the elect. And so what began with so much hope and with so much promise, it ended with Zwingli in tears and still more division. And the Reformation, it has not recovered ever since. Now, a year after this meeting, John Calvin, he broke from the Roman Catholic Church. And it's been speculated that if he was present at this meeting, well, perhaps there would have been some reconciliation found. The principal disagreement at Marburg was whether Jesus is present in the supper. Luther maintained, we receive Jesus simply because he says so. Zwingli, he pointed out, on the other hand, that Jesus ascended into heaven. If he's in heaven, he must remain there, and therefore we cannot receive Christ at the supper. Well, Calvin, he reconciled both of these positions by agreeing with both men. It is indeed true that Jesus is in heaven, and yet we truly do feed upon the body and blood of Christ. And our confessions, they agree with Calvin. Uh, Question 79 of the Heidelberg Catechism, it says... Christ's crucified body and shed blood are the true food and drink of our souls. The Belgian Confession, another one of our confessional statements, it says, We do not go wrong when we say that what is eaten is Christ's own natural body and what is drunk is his own blood. But the basis for this seeming compromise between Luther and Zwingli is not seeking reconciliation for its own sake. The... the, the this uh, seeming compromise is not found on the basis of philosophy. Calvin wasn't philosophizing about how Christ is present in the supper. Instead, Calvin just simply turned to the scriptures and inquired, how can we understand these things? Ultimately, we will see there is a great mystery here. There's a great mystery, and ultimately we must adore the mystery. It's better that we experience it, better that we feel it, than comprehend it. And yet, there are things that we can know about this supper. We partake of Christ's body and blood mysteriously, though he is in heaven. How exactly do we partake of his body and blood? Well, first, it's necessary for us to understand what it means that Jesus is in heaven, that he will remain there until his second coming. And we do so by recognizing the redemptive historical significance of his descent, his ascent, and his parousia, his return, his coming. An important method for doing theology is identifying important redemptive historical events in Scripture. For example, there's the fall. There's also the flood, the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, the anointing of Saul. Those are huge, significant events in Scripture. But we could also look at redemptive history through the lens of the covenants that that God has made with people. There's like the, the covenants that God made with Adam. There's the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David. These are unique redemptive events that move redemptive history forward, manifesting the mystery of God's redemptive will for us in history. All of redemptive history, though, it's, it culminates with the incarnation of Christ, his descent from heaven and his birth 
is the high point of redemptive history. God, he took on human flesh so that he might live and die for us. Jesus came to, wor- to earth with a work to accomplish. That work, it entailed a righteousness that he had to earn, a death that he had to suffer, a burial he had to undergo, and a resurrection. These are the unique redemptive historical events that only happened once. We do not expect Jesus to be born again. We do not expect to see him working and dying and rising again. These are unique events. And so his descent from heaven and his his birth, his death and his resurrection, key moments in his person and his work. And yet there is another part of his work which we often overlook, and that's his ascension. Christ's ascension is important because it is the enthronement ceremony of the Son. After ascending into heaven, the Son sat at the right hand of the Father, bringing his redemptive work to an end, and he now rules all things in power and in mercy. And it's from this throne in heaven that he continues to intercede for us and to care for us, looking after us as we go through this veil of tears. In John 14, Jesus said he is going away, and the world will see him no more. After he ascended in Acts chapter 1, angels came announcing that he is surely, he is gone and he's been taken up into heaven. And yet the, the angels, they also promise that he will come again from heaven in just the same way that he went. He, he, he will come visibly, he will come bodily at the end of days, bringing with him the new heavens and the new earth to consummate all things. This appearing of Christ, it's what we call the parousia. It's his second coming, that coming which uh, we long for, looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth, a glorified earth with glorified existence. And so redemptive history, it forces us to conclude that there is a real absence at this time. Jesus is gone, and he will remain gone until his parousia. As Peter says in Acts 3, he will remain in heaven until the time of universal restoration. Therefore, Luther can't be right about this. Jesus does not return to be present on an altar or at a table. Jesus is not present in, with, and under the bread. Because that goes against the redemptive historical sequence of descent, ascent, and parousia. But Jesus did promise us, didn't he, that he would be with us just before his ascent. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Ephesians says, Christ dwells in our hearts. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to suggest that he is especially present in the supper. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. My body is true food, my blood is true drink. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. But isn't this all a contradiction? How can we say that he is truly absent and yet also say that he is really present? That sounds like a contradiction. Now, technically, it's not a contradiction. A contradiction would be to say that he is uh, absent and that he is not absent. But what we believe is that though he is not here in his humanity, he is present by his Holy Spirit. And so there is a tension between the first coming uh, and the second coming of Christ. A tension between his ascension and parousia. A tension between his absence and his presence. But this tension is relieved by the Holy Spirit. 
Again, in John 14, Jesus said that he will send to us the Spirit to be our helper. He goes on to say, for this reason, that I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He says he's going to come to us even though he ascends to heaven. How does he do that? How does he care for us? How does he not leave us as orphans? By sending the Spirit. He says in John 16, it's for our benefit that he goes away. For if I do not go away, he says, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus' ascension, it was necessary, not only for the reasons we already talked about, but it's also necessary so that the Holy Spirit may come. Pentecost is another one of those crucial redemptive historical events. The Holy Spirit, he comes out of heaven, out of the age to come, and applies to the elect all of the saving benefits of the person and work of Christ. And so in this time between Christ's two comings, we live in the age of the Spirit. And so how is Christ present in the supper? Indeed, how can we say he's with us to the end of the age? How is he with us when we gather in his name? By his Holy Spirit. The Spirit joins us to Christ. That is one of the great promises of the gospel. Just as a husband and a wife become one flesh in marriage, we become one with Christ through faith. And it's by the Holy Spirit that we are united to Christ. The church is called the bride of Christ. Fittingly, then, it's also called the body of Christ. We are united to Christ by the Spirit. And so it's in virtue of this mystical union through the wedding ring of faith that everything that is Christ's becomes ours. The ministry of the Spirit is to give Christ to you. That is what he does here and now. Between the the two companies of Christ, the Spirit gives you Christ. In fact, even now we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's by the Spirit that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And it's by the Spirit that we partake of Christ in the supper. And that is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 16. He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? While in the institution of the supper, Jesus, he said uh, that the bread is his body. This is my body. He says this cup of the new covenant and his blood it is his blood. So the bread and the wine, uh, to use Paul's language, while remaining bread and wine, participate in the body and blood of Jesus. In some way, by eating of the bread and drinking that wine, we partake of Christ's body and blood. And again, it's by the Holy Spirit that we do this. And this is why when we take the Lord's Supper, Pastor Danny, he will say, lift up your hearts. And we reply, we lift them up to the Lord. Because the Holy Spirit mysteriously, through faith, lifts us up into the heavenly places where we partake of that true body and blood. Just as we are united with Christ, the Holy Spirit unites the sign of the bread and the sign of the wine with that which they signify, which is the body and blood of Jesus. Uh, you will recall that a few weeks ago we considered the, ba- the benefits of baptism. And at that time, I introduced the distinction between the sign and the thing it signifies. Just as smoke signifies fire, so baptism is a sign of the renewal of our soul's and the forgiveness of our sins. So similarly, in communion, 
The signs of bread and wine are united to that which they signify, the body and blood of Christ. But we also noted that the sign and the thing signified are not collapsed. One is not regenerated just by being baptized. So neither do we automatically partake of Christ's body and blood through communion. But at the same time, they are not separated. This is what Zwingli thought. The, the sign and the thing signified were separated, so that way it could only serve as a memorial. But we do indeed commune with Christ's body and blood. According to Calvin, the sign and the thing signified are distinct but not separate. The sign and the thing signified are united by the Spirit and through faith. Notice that faith is necessary. An unbeliever, he will not receive Christ in the supper. Christ is only received through faith. This is how we are to understand sacramental union. That phrase I used a few weeks ago, sacramental union. The sacraments are united to what they signify in virtue of our faith. In the Eucharist, we, we would only receive what it signifies. Uh, we would only receive the sign apart from faith. But in faith, we truly do receive Christ. We receive Christ by the Spirit through faith, which is the hand and mouth of our souls. And this is what Paul means when he says that the bread and the wine are a participation in the body and blood of Christ. In the words of our liturgical form for the Lord's Supper, it says, While remaining bread and wine... These sacred elements, nevertheless, become so united to the reality they signify that we do not doubt. When you take that bread and you hold on to that wine, we do not doubt, but joyfully believe that we receive in this meal by the Spirit and through faith nothing less than the crucified body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this might be surprising for some of you to hear. You mean to say we truly received Jesus in the supper? I mean, if we're being honest, some of us might say that sounds a little Catholic. But Calvin points out that our partaking of, of Christ in the supper, it has to mean more than just believing in Christ. He says, Since it is not the sight, but the eating of bread, that gives nourishment to the body, so the soul must partake of Christ truly and thoroughly, that by his energy, it may grow up into spiritual life. When we are hungry, we do not just stare at the food we're going to eat and then expect ourselves to be nourished by it. We have to take that food. We have to put it in our mouths. We have to eat it. It's only by, by, by doing that that our bodies are going to be nourished. So also, we do not simply look to Christ in the supper, hoping, with, uh, hoping to, to, uh, to receive him through faith. We actually partake of Christ. Now, why, why should it matter that we partake of the, the body and blood? What's the point? Uh, Pastor Danny, a few weeks ago, he said, you could tell them the what, but you also have to tell them the so what. Why isn't it enough, for example, for us to partake of his divinity? Why also his humanity? Because we partake of the person of Christ. He is the one who is indivisibly and inconfusedly God and man. Communion doesn't just remind us of the gift of Christ, but it is itself the gift of Christ. And not just of the divine Christ, not just of the human Christ, but of the whole Christ. Michael Horton, he puts it best when he says, 
If the whole Christ, as human, no less than divine, secured our redemption, then our communion must be with the whole Christ. If we cannot receive the benefits of Christ apart from his person, then the supper, then the supper must communicate Christ's person as well as his work. Uh, to try to receive the benefits of Christ apart from receiving his person is ultimately idolatrous. In fact, it's, it's in virtue of us partaking of the person of Christ that we could ever part- receive the benefits of his life, his death, and his resurrection. The greatest benefit of the supper, indeed of our whole salvation, is Jesus Christ himself. That God will be our God, and that we will be his people, and that we will commune with him. Justification, that is good news. Good news to know that you have the forgiveness of sins. Sanctification, adoption, glorification. These are wonderful benefits that we have in Christ. But they are themselves for the purpose of the ultimate benefit of Jesus Christ himself. It is for the sake of our having Jesus that we are justified. It is for the sake of communion with God and a new heavens and a new earth for eternity that we are glorified. So as good as those things are, Do not overlook the greatest benefit, Jesus himself, which is precisely what we receive in the supper. The God-man, the whole Christ, that is who the Spirit gives us. Just as bread came from heaven upon Israel and gave them the strength to wander 40 years in the wilderness, even though they were faithless. God, by the Spirit, raises us up and gives to us bread of heaven. He gives us his own Son to help us miserable and undeserving sinners to strengthen us throughout our pilgrimage to the eternal promised land. In the supper, we receive Christ. By feeding on Christ, we appropriate, we receive more and more to ourselves his works. We partake of the crucified Christ who died for our sins. In eating this meal, then, you have the assurance that your sins are forgiven and that God accepts you as his own. The one who drank the cup of God's wrath gives to you his cup of the new covenant in his blood. For you, then, who have a tender conscience, when your heart accuses you and you face your doubts, come to this table and know that Christ in God does not count your sins against you. We not only receive the crucified Christ, we also receive the risen Lord Jesus. The Christ who died for your sins is the same one God raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of the, of the new creation. God assures you that when you partake of this Christ, you too will be raised from the dead. And even now you are raised to a newness of life. Partaking of this risen Lord Jesus, you have assured to you that declaration of righteousness. And you will be vindicated in righteousness when Jesus returns. And so in this meal, God gives you assurance that you are indeed justified. In this meal, you are given the hope of resurrection. And you also partake of the ascended Christ. The one who rules over all things. He gives you the power to endure. When this life's 
ups and downs come up against you, come to the table and receive this bread and this wine and through it partake in faith and by the Spirit, the ascended Christ. This is food for our souls. This is the food that gets us up another day. This is the food that aids us in the fight against sin and motivates us to pursue holiness. Christ is the food for our souls that assures us that even when we do sin, God is still with us, that God still cares for us because that risen Jesus who is ascended in heaven continues to intercede for you. And we partake of the heavenly Lord Jesus. Heaven is nothing other than the age to come. The new Jerusalem that we await with longing. That new Jerusalem, that new creation which Jesus will bring with him when he returns. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And then when I come back, then I will bring it with me. But when we partake of this food, we are partaking of the powers of the age to come. Again, the the Spirit mysteriously lifts us up into heaven. And we partake of that heavenly food. We partake of the heavenly Christ. So that we may be assured that as we look forward to his coming, we will receive glorification. We will have new bodies. A glorified body where all the aches and pains that we feel in this life will be done away with. Where the sluggishness that we feel, especially when the work week comes again, we may have to get up in the morning and, and go to work. Well, you have, as Pastor said earlier, you have been given peace and rest because you've been given Christ and you receive that peace and rest, the rest of the age to come, the peace that we will have Glorified existence, you are partaking of that heavenly food when you eat and drink that bread and wine. That though remaining bread and wine, nevertheless, our participation in the body and the blood of Christ. That is what you do when you come to communion. That is what we just did, what, 40, 50 minutes ago. Partaking of the Christ who died for us partaking of the Christ who rose for us, partaking of the Christ who ascended for us, partaking of the Christ who will come again for us, partaking of the Christ to whom we are joined by the Spirit, partaking of the Christ whom we will worship for eternity, partaking of that Christ who intercedes for you, partaking of that Christ who lives and will come again for us, mysteriously, yet wonderfully, And so this is sweet communion that we have with our God. We taste and we see that the Lord is good. He nourishes our souls with himself. So fitting is it then for us to conclude by turning to this wonderful God in adoration and praise as we recognize just how much he has condescended for us to help us and to bless us in this life, not merely with the good word which we receive in the gospel, but also with his flesh and with his blood by the Holy Spirit, which strengthens our faith and assures us when we have our doubts. That gets us up in the morning. This majesty of our God, it far exceeds our capacity to understand these things. 
We might ask the question, how exactly do we partake of the body and blood of Jesus? Well, that's a mystery. And so let's follow Calvin by saying, let us adore the mystery. He says, whenever this subject is considered, after I've done my utmost, I feel that I have spoken far beneath its dignity. And though the mind is more powerful in thought than the tongue in expression, it too is overcome and overwhelmed by the magnitude of the subject. All then that remains is to break forth in admiration of the mystery. Oh, the depths and riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? And who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Our dear Heavenly Father. Unworthy are we to receive this bread and this wine that we have received. To receive in it, miraculously and mysteriously through your spirit, the very blood and body of Jesus Christ our Lord. Unworthy are we to eat of this bread. Unworthy are we to gather up the crumbs under your table. And yet you feed us. You nourish us with your own son. What a wonderful gift that we have in Christ. What a wonderful gift we have through the Holy Spirit. That we have the forgiveness of sins, not because we eat of the bread and drink the wine, but because it is Christ who died for us. And it's through faith that we receive him. And so also by faith that we partake of him. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith as we come once again next week to dine upon that heavenly food. But in the, until then, Lord, please strengthen us that throughout this week that we will not be distracted by those pretty little things we see in this world. But that as we go through it, loving our neighbor, our eyes will be fixed upon that world to come, that world which Christ will bring with him. And it's then, Lord, that we look forward to eating that marriage supper of the Lamb, where there will be good wine and good food for us. And so it's to that end, Lord, we pray, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. We are eager for you to come. So that not only will we be, not only do we look forward to you as we as we receive this bread and wine, but we we just want you, Lord. So strengthen us and preserve us in this time. That we will, uh, when you come, receive you in truth, seeing you, not through bread and wine, but seeing you face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen.